0: Insurance and Injury Law Show, we're back at one 990 9646 The number always, the email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll give you details on a few tools and other uh, websites you can go to for a plethora of information. Uh, We'll get to that in just a little while time. A little later on the show we'll get a bunch of questions, emails. We got tons. I know, guys, you got stuff to say, uh, things of the week that was that are happening. James, uh, back in the show this week, Savannah, of course, you are here. James, I know you wanted to start out with uh, what's going on in your world. What is happening?
1: I have a client, very nice lady, been with me for a few months now. uh, And we have a mediation coming up. And it's an interesting situation. So when she applied for her disability insurance. She was having issues with her shoulder and with her back. And she'd been to her family doctor, of course, and her family doctor had sent her to see a few specialists. And they had some ideas of what it might be. They did, they'd done some x-rays, but it wasn't very clear what the diagnosis was, what the underlying cause of her symptoms were. But nonetheless, she had difficulty with her right shoulder, and she's right-handed, and with her lower back, and that prevented her from working and her doctor and specialist agreed. But guess what, her insurance company did not. Um, so when she applied for long-term disability, she was denied. And when I got the file and I looked through it, it seemed very clear that the doctors were saying that this is you know, legitimately caused, and there are explanations in the x-ray that may well fit. They may not, it may be something else, but there is clearly a disability there. And yet the insurance company still denied her claim. Hmm. And so, you know, it raises the question, you know, does the fact that at that point in time her doctors had not been able to clearly identify the specific cause of her symptoms, in other words, have a um, a concrete diagnosis, that they hadn't been able to do that, does that give the insurance company the right to deny the claim? And very clearly it does not. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada quite recently has been very clear on that subject. If you are, if you are, are suffering from symptoms that are legitimate, uh, um, even if the medical community is not able to identify the specific cause of it, either because the proper tests haven't been done yet. Or because medical science perhaps hasn't advanced to the point where it's able to. But if they are legitimate issues that you are suffering from, then you're entitled to be compensated for it. And so in any case, the insurance company has denied her claim and we're headed to mediation. But in the meantime, after they denied her claim, she went to see more specialists and had an MRI done and the MRI was able to identify what is the likely cause. It's likely a neuropathy. It's a an issue with her nerves um, and uh, disc bulging and herniation. And so it's you know at this point a very clear indication that she is disabled. She meets the definition in the policy. The insurance company denied her claim by cherry picking information from each of her doctors, ignoring um, what their opinion was as to the likely cause, which has borne out as time has gone by, and just relying on the fact that there wasn't an objective, concrete diagnosis. And now, now that we've confirmed what it is, and they, they've they still held on to the denial, they're in a very difficult position. Mm-hmm. Because now the insurance company is not only going to have to pay the claim, but they're exposed to punitive and aggravated damages. Because they had information that clearly showed that my client was disabled. And having denied that claim on an illegitimate basis, and now that there's real concrete proof of it, they're in a very, very tough
0: spot. So I'm interested to see what's gonna happen at the mediation, but they're gonna be in a very difficult position. That six forty six that is the number. It is help at the insurance Your email Your emails coming here in uh, in just a little while what's
2: uh, what's going on in your world Savannah? Well John, before I go into uh, one of the emails that I received I want to yeah. ask James about that uh, case that he just mentioned. You uh, specifically mentioned cherry picking that the insurance company has been cherry picking. That's something that we see quite often in cases. How do you deal with that? when you go to a mediation and you have the insurance defense lawyer also relying on only specific aspects of uh, the the medical file, when you know and your client knows that they are, in fact, cherry-picking? Well,
1: I'm not known for being subtle. (laughs) That's for sure, yes. It it isn't something that is uh, used to describe me often. Uh, And so I am very direct with it. I will say, you know, in my memo prior to mediation... I will take the actual portion of the denial letter um, where they've referenced a report from a specific doctor and include exactly what they have put in there. I will actually take a screen capture of the portion of the mm-hmm. uh, of the letter. And this is what you said about it. And then I'll take a screen capture of the actual, um, doctors report that they were relying on and show all of the things that they left out. Now sometimes you know if you're if you, if someone from uh, the insurance side is on the up and up perhaps they've done it fairly but in this case they referenced four different reports and in each case they ignored the doctors overriding opinion they ignored reporting of certain symptoms but not others and they just reported on the things that made their denial look like it was a fait accompli, look like that it was a legitimate denial. And so it's actually quite easy in this case, and quite frankly, I had a lot of fun with it um, because it was just so easy to juxtapose what they said with what was actually there. And once you're faced with that, it's black and white. There's not a whole lot you can say. I'm very curious to see what they will say at the mediation,
2: we'll see. I mean, this is something that's very frustrating for individuals, especially when I speak with them and they say, look, the insurance company is focusing on this and that. Uh, And, and, you know, what's even more aggravating is when the insurance company sends an individual to their doctors and the doctors then do a full exam, but only choose to uh, put in certain aspects of the exam or some of the results. So the doctors that the insurance companies are using are also cherry picking. How do you deal with those doctors as opposed to just dealing with the insurance uh, lawyer or the adjuster?
1: Well, I mean, oftentimes um, the doctor will have portions of the file. They should have the full file. So to whatever extent the doctor that is reviewing the file is missing information, um, that's all, always ammunition you can use against them and say, well, you never had this report, and thus that may be why you aren't aware that uh, my client had this problem and this problem, and that may be why you never commented on this at all to the extent that they you know, have all the information and still don't comment on it, then that's just low-hanging fruit. Because if there is something that's identified in the file, and they don't comment on it one way or the other, then it's essentially like they don't really understand what their purpose is. Mm-hmm. If the problem is that they've got a lower back issue, and the doctor doesn't do an examination on the lower back, and doesn't comment on what the file says is the underlying cause of the lower back issue, then that doctor's opinion is worthless. If the doctor knows what they're doing on the insurance side, even if they're you know not doing it on the up and up, they will comment on the lower back and say, you know, I've reviewed this report and I don't believe that there's any disability. Um, and I can argue with that, but it's a tougher argument to make because they've actually turned their mind to it and they put their opinion there. Then I have to you know rely on a medical argument, and I'm not a doctor, so... It's not up to me to argue with a medical opinion that's there. I have to rely on my own doctors to do that. But if they don't actually express an opinion
0: on it, whether they have the information or not, then they're in big trouble. Going to take a, a short break, guys. Savannah, we'll get to you right after that break. The number in the meantime, 1-888-990-9646. And help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio one or help at theinsurancelawyer.ca through email. Lots to go here as we
2: continue on. Savan, you wanted to go through some cases that you're working on, uh, or at least one anyway. What's going on? Yeah, let me mention uh, a question that was posted recently to uh, mydisabilityquestions.com, the free website that we have where people post questions about long-term disability, and uh, we answer those questions for free. This one comes from a lady. Uh, her name is Carmenilla uh, in Maple, and here's what she writes. She says, "I've been off of work since June 2016 for an ongoing shoulder problem. I was approved for short-term disability, NEI, and then approved for LTD. I was informed that as of February 2018, that all of my LTD would come to an end. As of March 2018, my employer cut off all my benefits and put me on medical leave without pay. This has put a major strain on me, and I have not been able to continue with my therapy as it is costly. I've been going to a pain clinic for treatment. My stress level is so high that I've now developed high blood pressure. I'm on my third appeal with the LTD insurance company. uh, And she says, I did not get her to work, so my company tells me that they are not obligated to give me modified duties. Mm -hmm. And I've been employed with the same company since 1996. So, you know, let's try and unpack this. Uh, There's a lot there. there, There's a lot there, 100%. So, number one... uh, the first thing that jumps at you is that uh, she was cut off February of 2018. That's seven months ago, and she's now on her third appeal. If oh. I recall,
1: she was actually told in advance she was going to be cut
2: off. Yeah, she, she was told. In yeah. it, you're absolutely right. Exactly. So she probably would have known about this for about eight or nine months uh, ago that she was going to get cut off uh, back in February. So, so you know, the first mistake that I can I can see here, and, and I'm not blaming uh, this lady for for going through this because I think many, many people out there make the same mistake. Uh, When you're cut off by your LTD insurer, you are invited to appeal. I don't know how many times on this show James and I have said over and over, don't appeal these decisions. Appealing these decisions means that you are leaving the power, the decision-making power as to whether or not you're going to get these payments with the insurance company. You're leaving it in their hands. What's the option? What's the alternative? The alternative is to give us a call and have us help you start a legal claim against the insurance company because that process is outside of the insurance company's uh, uh, control. And why is that important? Because so long as the insurance company retains the power to say yes or no to paying you for your benefits, the benefits that you are owed, they are most likely going to say no. They are most likely going to deny your appeal, and this lady is proof of that three times she has appealed a decision. The reality is that if we had started a legal claim against this insurance company back in February or even earlier when she first got notice that she was going to get cut off, we probably would have resolved that claim by now. That's that's the likely scenario. Now, we have a few other issues that I want to discuss here. I'm sure that James wants to get in on this, but, but let me just outline something here. She's also having an issue that she's outlined with her employer and that her employer... Uh, has cut off all her benefits now this now uh sort of seeps into the employment law realm right the stuff that uh john you and leor talk about on the employment hour and again very it's very important to understand many people who are having issues with their uh disability insurer also have issues at the same time with their employer a lot of employers are doing things that they're not allowed to do by law and what does that mean it means that individuals who are experiencing these problems may have legal recourse against their employers you know, the fact that she's saying that the employee here says that the the, the the employer told her that she did not get her to work, so therefore they're not obligated to give her modified duties, that is complete nonsense. It's completely irrelevant whether she was hurt at work, whether her disability arose because of something at work. The law is very clear. Employers have an obligation to accommodate employees who are disabled. Now, whether or not they would have been able to accommodate her specific disability, I don't know. But clearly, she's saying here that she's getting, you know, hurt on on both sides, both from the insurance company as well as from her employer. And we can help with both of these issues. And that's really the key thing I want people to take away from this. If you are having issue with your employer, if you're having issue with your disability insurer, give us a call. Get in touch with us because I'll tell you, oftentimes you're gonna make these mistakes. They're just going to prolong whatever suffering and agony you and your family are going through when you don't actually have to. There's just no reason for that. We can give you the information you need so you can make an informed decision on how to get the compensation that you deserve.
1: It's really important to recognize that the way insurance companies deal with you is designed to make you believe that you don't really have any other options than specifically what they present to you. So they send you a denial letter saying that they're going to cut you off in a couple of months. They don't say that you can start a legal challenge now. Um, all they talk about is the appeal process and it seems as though that's the only avenue and that you got to wait until you're cut off and then you have to appeal. That's all wrong. So, not only do you not have to appeal, you shouldn't, and you do not have to wait to challenge them. You can do it right away. You're just, you know, You're taking more time than is necessary, and that just means you're not going to be able to get your benefits as soon as you might otherwise be able to get them. The reality is that there is no cost to you in getting the information. You call us, the information is entirely free. There is no obligation beyond it. So you give us a call and you find out what you are able to do and when you're able to do it, and then you make your own decision whether or not you want to proceed. That's up
2: to you. John, you know, on, on on that same vein here about how uh, the process is designed to really frustrate individuals and fr- and, and really designed, you know, to to uh, convince or persuade people that they right. have no other options. In in one of the last shows, uh, we had talked about, uh, or, or I actually said that, uh, you know, the 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 um, the appeals process, such that it is, you know if you hear of someone actually succeeding in an appeal, that's like winning the lottery. That, that's the comparison that I had made. And of course, I, I got an email after the show aired uh, from, from our favorite uh, insurance guy, Terry, who of course has a lot of uh, knowledge and experience having worked in the insurance industry for many years. And you know he, he's told me that insurers have uh, you know, certain expectations regarding the number of, of new claims and closure of claims on right. a monthly basis. And that's just from his experience. And, you know, the reality is that individual adjusters who are there working for these insurance companies, who are dealing with disabled individuals, there are expectations that they are expected to meet. Uh, and, 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 you know, if if they have a lot of claims that are not closing, or if they're opening a lot of new claims and approving a lot of claims, and if their numbers are off the charts in a way that impacts the insurance company such that the insurance company has to pay more than they're used to, that will likely generate a discussion at or before their formal performance appraisal, so if you think about that, you know that's not to say that insurance companies necessarily uh, overtly punish or reward adjusters based on you know the types of uh, or, or the amounts of claims that they mm-hmm. open or close, but there is an expectations uh, or there is an expectation out there that adjusters will conform to the certain guidelines and expectations that the insurance company has. So just keep that in mind. The insurance companies are there to make money, and these adjusters are there to uh, make that happen, and one of the ways to make that happen is by making sure that you know they deny claims and they cut off people who perhaps have uh, you know legitimate claims. We'll uh, take a short break. Want to bounce over to uh, Ltd
0: as it concerns social media after we come back, and of course more emails or emails will begin there as well. That email address, you want to send one. In the meantime, is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Phone number anytime as well, 1-888-990-9646, completely toll free. Lots more the insurance and injury law show is on the way. This is Global News Radio. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number to get a hold of James Savan, member of the team. No problem, any Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca is the email we refer to as well. So back to LTD's promise, guys. Uh, what happens if the insurance company denies a person's disability claim? Because of social media posts, disabled persons made, for instance, uh, they're at a wedding, having a good time, doing some other event. Uh, they post pictures of this, of them looking happy. Now you know, They might not be jumping up and down doing, doing doing circles, but they're having a good time. They're participating at the wedding. Is the insurer justified in cutting off that person's disability because of that social media post?
1: It really kind of depends on what's in the social media post, yeah. John. Um, before I really get into the specifics of this, it's common sense. If you're involved in a legal claim, you want to be pretty careful about what you're posting on social media. Um, you know, Insurance companies will take anything that you post out of context and try and use it against you. So use some discretion. Um, if there are privacy uh, options for whatever social media you use, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or what have you, Try and use those, use those to make sure that as few people that you don't know have access to your site as possible so that, you know, someone from the insurance company can't just log on to your Facebook account and pull every picture. That someone else may have posted Um, and perhaps you're at a party and you're holding a wine glass. Well, you may say big deal, but if there's two or three of those posted, they'll paint a picture that you're just out having a great time all the time. And depending on why you're on disability or why you say that you're injured, that may be used against you fairly or unfairly. And they will try and use it unfairly against you. Now, to specifically answer this question, can they use the social media to cut you off? Yes, they can. Does that mean it's going to be legitimate? Well, it's a question of fact. It really depends on um, ultimately uh, what the opinion is of the person or jury that's deciding the case. And so if we're talking about one specific instance where, again, let's use the example you're at someone's house and maybe you have a, a bottle of beer they may try and use that to suggest that you're out having a great time, but we all know that social media is just one moment in time. And so mm-hmm. going out and having a drink and a picture of you with a drink in your hand is really not that big a deal. And I don't get too upset when that you know kind of evidence appears in one of my cases. But on the other hand, you know, if you are telling your doctors and you're telling the lawyers that, you know, you can't get out of bed and that, you know, you need someone to help feed you and bathe you and, you know, you really can't do anything. And, you know, there are social media posts of you skydiving, you've got a big problem. (laughs) So it really depends on where you fall on the spectrum. Now, you know, you rarely see it all the way on one side or the other. It's often somewhere in between. And so you really have to look at each case specifically. But the bottom line is this, John. You really have to use discretion when you're posting about social media because they will try and use anything you post against you. So use those privacy settings. When so,
2: in doubt, don't do it. John, really. I, I can tell you uh, that I, I had a case that comes to mind when I was working as a defense lawyer. Uh, and, and this was, um, I think, out in London, where I was defending the insurance company against a claim. And, and you know, I that claimant, I... I truly believe was exaggerating his injuries. Mm. Uh, he was claiming a whole bas- a, a, a whole bunch of injuries including back issues and and uh, neck issues etc. And and here's the thing, we the insurance company that I was working for at the time uh, dug around and not only got some photographs from social media that showed him fishing some nice big fish, uh. but what was more damaging was what he wrote, the actual captions where he wrote about how the whole day he was having fun with the sun. Uh, catching these humongous, you know, big big fish, uh, taking them out, and the day before, so get this: there was no photo for this, but there was again a caption, uh, not a caption text, where he wrote that the day before he enjoyed uh, mud wrestling with a buddy of his. Oh geez! Uh, and you know, and we went uh, in in front of a judge. This was not this was this was a pre-trial, and uh, I mean the judge had one look at that, and let's just say that we resolved that claim very shortly after. And listen, I had no no issues with that. I had no issues with using that mm-hmm. against that individual because I actually believed that he was, uh, you know, trying to scam the system. Uh, but, you know, be very, very careful. If you're not one of those people, if you are, you know, putting something on social media and, you know, you're doing it because you just want to, to show people, you know, the fun that you're having in a certain event just be careful that not only is the insurance company going to cherry-pick whatever they end up using against you, they're gonna use your own words against you. So it's not just the photos that you put up, it's also what you're describing in the text. And that's not to say that you should stop living your life, but understand that there is gonna be somebody watching when you have a legal claim. And again, we're not telling you that if you have a frivolous claim, to, you know, we're not giving you tactics and techniques to, again, scam the system. We're saying that if you are legitimately injured or disabled, be very careful about giving ammunition to the other side that they will definitively use against you.
0: Doesn't it also sometimes, as you mentioned before, I mean, when it comes to more of, uh, you know, mental issues, we'll say, sometimes it's part of your therapy to get out there and have a good time and smile and laugh. I mean, this could all be taken the wrong way, right?
1: That's absolutely true, but it can, you know, photographs leave indelible impressions on people. And, you know, when you're using social media, it's really sort of the best of your life. And so, you know, a lot of people fall into the trap of looking at what their friends are doing on social media and you think, wow, you know this guy's having a great time. What a life he's leading! But the reality is often very, very different. And so, when you're just looking at what's out there, you know, you don't really get a you know an accurate picture. Yeah. But people are just going to assume it's accurate because that's what you've put on there. And so, to come back to your question, John, sure, it's something that um you know is often prescribed by you know psychiatrists or psychologists when you're suffering from depression to go mm-hmm. out and live your life and. Enjoy yourself, but you know in the context of an insurance company, don't enjoy yourself no. too much or right. they're going to try and use it against you. the it's bottom The bottom line is this, you know it doesn't help you to post the best of your life on social media when you're involved in a legal claim. It
2: just doesn't. It's perception, John. it it comes yeah. down to perception and it comes down to common sense. You have to use common sense when you are posting things. If you have a legal claim for an injury or disability, I'm telling you, the insurance company is watching or one of the people they've hired is watching because they know that many people are just going to go out there and post these things. So why give them the ammunition, the grenades and, and, you know, all the firepower to throw at you? I mean, why do that? We already have to fight them. Why give them more to throw at you? There's no reason for it. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety
0: six forty six is that number? Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We will bounce right over to an email as soon as we come back. In the meantime, you want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim should be. That is a tool, as mentioned earlier on in the show, injury calculator at injurycalculator.ca as well. Lots more of the insurance and injury law show coming right up, right here, Global News Radio. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Help at the ca. Contact any time for James or Savannah. Rest of the team. Joanne uh, writes in, says my uh, I'm 37 years old and work as a receptionist at a doctor's office. I was diagnosed earlier this year with bipolar disorder and depression and have been taking a lot of medications that make me very drowsy. My psychologist and doctor both filled out the necessary forms for my LTD. But I was rejected because the insurance company says that their doctor reviewed the reports and doesn't think that I am totally disabled. I don't understand what that means. What is totally disabled? So totally disabled is
1: a phrase that is going to be defined in your long-term disability policy. It can mean whatever is in the policy, and the policies can vary. But generally speaking, most standard policies have similar wording. and So this is what it means. For the first two years that you are eligible to receive benefits, total disability means that you are not able to return to the occupation that you had at the time that you were disabled. And so if you are applying for disability benefits, you have to be able to prove medically that you are unable to return to your occupation, not your job, but your occupation. So in other words, if you have a specific issue at your own employer, but you can do the same job somewhere else, you're medically able to do the same job somewhere else, under the terms of most LTD policies, you wouldn't actually meet the definition. But if your disability prevents you from doing your occupation, then you would. After the first two years, the definition changes. It's called the change of definition. And at the two year mark, the definition of total disability becomes whether or not, from a medical, medical perspective, you are able to do any occupation that you're qualified to do by your training, education, or experience. And so if you are able to do any other occupation, then you would not qualify. If you can't, right. then you would. Now. Does that mean after the two-year mark that you, you know, have to be a telemarketer when you were making three hundred thousand dollars a year? No, um, there is case law that suggests that you need, you know, in order for that to apply, this um, training, education, and experience part of the definition of total disability it would only apply to a job that would pay you something in the realm of about 60% of what you had been earning at the time you went on disability. So it has to be something reasonably comparable, at least in terms of your compensation. It's not just anything under the sun. Uh, But yeah, that's really what the definition means. And so when you're looking at it, you always want to take a look at the policy, of course, but essentially total disability
2: is just a defined term. And so that's what it means. And Johnny, if I can just add a few points, mm-hmm. I agree with everything that James said. I just wanted to spell something. Some nice. people call me up, uh, just like Joanne, and say, you know, total disability, does that mean I have to be in a coma? Does that have to be, you know, did I have to be paralyzed? Right. So James's definitions or the way he's described what it means is correct, but even more so, just to break it down, no, it does not mean that you have to be paralyzed. That is not what total disability means in the context of long-term disability claims. And in Joanne's case, she mentions that her doctor and psychologist provided reports that supported her being off work, but that the insurance company's doctor apparently reviewed the reports and disagreed with her own treating doctor and psychologist. And again, this goes back to the first segment of the show, where we talked about insurance companies cherry-picking information from a medical file in order to support their decision to cut off or reject someone's LTD claim. You know, one of the things that I love the most when I challenge insurance company denials is going through their file and when I see that, in fact, they've used a doctor to, to, to review a file and that doctor hasn't actually even spoken to my client... As far as I'm concerned, that's a huge no-no. I mean, on the one hand, think about this. If you were a judge, John, and you're looking at this case, on the one hand, you're hearing testimony from uh, the treating family doctor who perhaps has been treating Joanne for five years, two years, ten years, who knows, a psychologist who's been seeing her perhaps once a week, once a month, whatever, but repeatedly, and on the other hand, you have a doctor paid by an insurance company to quickly review a medical file not even speak to the individual in question uh-huh. and simply, you know, create an opinion uh, from what I consider to be nothing, really, saying, "Oh, I disagree with what these treating physicians and, and specialists are saying, I don't think that she's disabled. I don't think that she meets a definition. That is complete and utter nonsense. And every time I've seen one of these cases, every time we've had the treating physicians, the specialists hit back, provide reports that counter what the insurance doctors said. Right. In each one of these cases that I've handled personally, I can tell you the insurance company eventually came to the table and paid my client proper compensation for their claim. Because they know that this if, if this thing went all the way to court, they know that a judge would just hammer them on this. And that's just the reality. So if you're in that situation, You've been rejected from your LTD uh, when you've applied for, for LTD, and, and the insurance company is relying on the opinion of a doctor that you've never even seen, give us a call immediately. Uh, let us review the information in your file. Let us review the denial letter, the medical reports from your doctors. We will tell you in a matter of minutes if you can challenge that decision by the insurance company. I can tell you we've done it. We've done it successfully, and we've done it repeatedly.
0: Back to more emails after a, a short break. one is the number. The email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca as well. Insurance and Injury Law Show right here on Global News Radio. Two more. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready? one 990 9646 is the number, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Blake, you're up next with your email. Says, uh, my buddy from work was in a bad accident last year and had a lawyer handle his accident claim. Nothing's been happening on it, and he had a, he has very little money coming in. I know that his family is struggling financially, and I've even lent him $10,000 for their mortgage and expenses. I told my friend to apply for LTD because we have it through work, but his lawyer told him that he should wait and not do it right now, uh, right now until he settles his car accident claim. Does that make any sense? My friend could really use the cash. Well, first of all, Blake, I want to say more people need friends like you.
1: Um, Not only have you lent your friend $10,000, which is obviously very generous, uh, but you're doing your friend a very big service by writing to us. Uh, And here's why. What his lawyer is doing makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. There is no reason to wait to to file the LTD claim. Number one, if you wait, you may be precluded from bringing it. Um, More than likely, there's going to be provisions in the long-term disability policy that require that you apply for the benefits within a specific time frame. Um, Oftentimes, it's within 90 days. Sometimes, it's a year. But if you don't do it within, then they have an argument that you're not entitled to even apply for the benefits. So that's number one. But number two, even if you could apply down the road, there isn't any benefit to you waiting. Now, I'm not sure whether Blake's pal was injured in a car accident or another kind of accident, and the law treats him a little bit differently um, with respect to how the the legal claim against the at fault person that caused the accident interacts with the disability claim. So for example, if he was in a car accident, what the law says is that the person that caused the car accident, the person that uh, Blake's uh, pal would be bringing a legal claim against, would get the benefit of any long-term disability insurance, um, whether or not he's actually applied for it. So if he hasn't applied for it, the, the guy that he's bringing the legal claim against is going to be able to say, well, you had this policy available to you, and you didn't bring it. We get credit for that. You don't get to double recover. So there's no benefit to you waiting. It just means that you're not getting those disability payments while you're bringing this legal claim for you know, those first year or two that you could have been getting the, the benefits. You're not getting them. So it makes absolutely no sense the person that you're bringing the claim against for the accident is going to get credit for it one way or the other. And if you have brought your, uh, your benefits claim and they've denied you, then you can say to the person you're bringing the claim against, well, we weren't paid this so you don't get credit for it. So you're always better off if you bring your disability claim at the start. And the other thing is this, if it wasn't a car accident, let's say it was a slip and fall accident, um, your long-term disability insurer may actually get credit for anything that you get from the, from the legal claim against whoever was responsible for the property. Mm. And if you've already settled that, they're going to get credit for that amount. Whereas if you bring your long-term disability claim first and you settle that before the uh, claim against whoever was at fault for the slip and fall is settled, then there's no set-off. Then you would get the benefit of both of them. There just isn't any scenario where it makes any sense to wait to start your long-term disability claim. None.
2: John, I just want to add something here. And again, I agree with everything James said, and he's provided all the technical arguments and explanations uh, in relation to this case. But Blake, my my concern is, I think, more fundamental even than, than that. If a lawyer is advising you not to take advantage of any systems of compensation, anything that can alleviate some of the financial hardship that a person experiences with their family after an accident, I see that not only as bad strategy, but it's unethical. Essentially, the lawyer here is trying to position the claim in such a way as to, uh, I I would say, put more money in their pocket. I mean, naturally, he's thinking, presumably the lawyer, that he's going to be able to put more money in the client's pocket as well, but he's doing that at the expense of the family and this individual going through just an absolutely atrocious situation. I mean, just imagine this family is unable to sustain itself, to survive. They may lose your house. I see that as completely unethical. And in fact, I see this as equivalent to a lawyer telling a client, don't try to go back to work, even if you think you can, even if your doctors say that they think you can, just because I think I'm going to be able to get you some more money later on. It's unethical, it's wrong, and frankly, it's one of the reasons why lawyers that do what we do often have a bad reputation and people think, you know, not so highly of us. The reality is that there are a lot of lawyers out there who are very ethical and when you have an accident, and Blake, this applies to your friend, this applies to anyone who's listening. If you have an accident, if you're dealing with an insurance company, you don't want to go to the lawyer that's going to tell you to do something that's illegal or unethical. It's going to it's going to taint your claim. You're likely going to n- not maximize the compensation that you could have otherwise received at the end uh, but it, it's 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 just gonna put you in a predicament because you're not going to be able to survive financially until the case settles in this case it's just absurd
1: you're it you're is. not getting benefits as early as you could and you're in a worse position
0: at the end of the day there is just no reason to do it in this no. case none that's right. We'll take a short break, guys. Get into our last few minutes here. one 990 9646 is that number. It is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Insurance and Injury Law Show. You're listening to it here on Global News Radio. one 9646 is the number. The email address is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. email gets the, uh, the last call goes to Laura. Laura says, I've been listening to your show for over a year, and find the information very, very useful. I'm in the health field, and I deal with insurance companies often on behalf of my patients. I do have a question about dealing with adjusters. Some of them are just plain rude, and I find that some disabled people just choose to forego their benefits because they're afraid that standing up to these aggressive adjusters will cause them more harm. I've had a patient that uh, hired a local lawyer who represented her with her disability claim, but he left the adjuster. Uh, he let the adjuster continue to communicate with his client. I thought that was not permissible. Can you please discuss that? Thanks.
2: It's absolutely not permissible, a- and that tells me that this lawyer doesn't know what he or she is doing. It doesn't even make sense. It, it doesn't make any sense no. whatsoever. I mean, I can I can tell you, John, and we talked about this before. You know, when I've had uh, first initial consultations with individuals who have then gone on to to hire me the biggest, I would say, selling point, quote unquote, wasn't really what I could do for them in terms of getting them the compensation that they deserve. The biggest selling point was that they don't have to deal with this adjuster anymore directly. Yeah. Everything has to come through me. Everything has to come through our office. And I can tell you, these adjusters, they're not aggressive once we get involved. And if they are aggressive, if they, are aggressive, they, they end up backing down very quickly. And, and frankly, most times, to be honest, whenever I've dealt with an adjuster, that, that I thought was just too thick to deal with, I just said, I'm not dealing with you. I'm issuing a claim, get a defense lawyer involved, and then everything started going smoothly. So there's zero reason why uh, when, when someone hires a lawyer to deal with their disability claim or their injury claim, why that lawyer is letting the insurance company deal directly with their client. That's not allowed, that should not happen, both strategically as well as I would say morally and ethically, it's the lawyer's job. At the end of the day,
1: there'd be no reason to do it, though. I mean, at the point where it's laziness. Well, it is. But I I just I'm not sure I really even understand how it arises because a client comes to see me with an LTD problem. Um, You know, we're bringing a legal claim very quickly. And as soon as the legal claim is started, there's no reason whatsoever for the adjuster who is handling the file to communicate with the client or with me. You know, I, the communication at that point goes to the insurance legal department. It's someone else. It's never the adjuster that was handling the file that winds up writing back to me. It's always someone else in their
2: legal department. But what happens when you find out that the adjuster circumvented you and actually communicates with your client when you're involved?
1: It hasn't happened, but that would be really <laughs> bad. <laughs> that would be, you know, a big, big no-no, um, and you know, certainly would put them in a very difficult position because they're not entitled to do that. Once you've started a legal claim, they're un- they're not allowed by law to communicate directly with my client. And if they do that, then they're in some big trouble. They've opened themselves up to possible punitive damages and aggravated damages. Um, presumably, my client's in a very difficult position already. Um, and almost certainly under a significant amount of distress. And them communicating directly uh, with my client when they're not supposed to is only adding to that. So, you know, if
2: they do that, they're in some big trouble. They're in you, hot water. You know, John, one of the things that Laura mentioned here is that. Uh, Uh, the the individual that she's talking about apparently hired a local lawyer. I just want to focus Mm. on that word local um, in the context of, of, you know, seeking legal advice. And I've had situations with people who have looked up our website and seen that, you know, we have an office in Toronto, we have an office in Ottawa, we have an office in in Vancouver. But, you know, they're thinking because, uh, you know, they're in Barrie or because they're in Windsor or because they're somewhere else in the province, whether it's here or in B.C., they should go to the person that's you know, right next door to them. And here's the reality, unfortunately. In many of the smaller jurisdictions, smaller towns, you're not necessarily going to find a lawyer that specializes or has expertise in this specific area of practice you want to stay away. And I'll I'll say this uh, with with no hesitation. You want to stay away from the lawyer who advertises that they do family law and real estate and immigration and disability and everything (laughs) under the sun. That's like going to a doctor specialist who says that they're an ENT and and, and a thoracic uh, surgeon and a brain surgeon. There's no such thing nowadays. This is all very focused and very specialized areas of practice. And I, that's not to say that
1: there aren't lawyers in smaller towns that might be perfectly capable of handling it. Both Savon and I know of some that are quite capable. But he's right. I mean, oftentimes in smaller towns, you do have lawyers that have a, a door practice, an open door practice. Anything that walks in the door, they do. Um, and again, if you take anything that walks in the door, you specialize in nothing and doing disability work and personal injury work requires you to really focus on it because there is a lot to know There is a lot of technical information that you have to be aware of. You have to understand how the interplay works between the different claims. And if you're not aware of that, you're gonna put your client in a very bad position and you're likely not gonna be able to maximize their claim.
2: Yeah, and and the reality is that we literally help people, John, across the province, whether it's with an employment issue or a disability issue or an injury issue. Again, that's not to say, uh, James is right, that other lawyers can't help you. But just to say we're not going to call these guys, we're not going to seek this information from them, even if you choose not to go with us, if you have an issue, if you've been injured through no fault of your own, or if, you, if you've uh, you know, been dealing with your, with your insurance company because your disability claim has been denied, not to give us a call or contact us just to get this information for free, I think you're doing a disservice to, to yourself, really, because we're offering that information to you and we're offering it so that you can be more informed about your legal choices.
0: That'll be it for another show, guys. Good stuff. You want to get a hold of Savannah or James or the team, it's simple. I'll give you two ways. The phone number, one 990 9646 and email us help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. And always, always consult the Injury Calculator to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim or your claim should be. That's easy to find as well, injurycalculator.ca. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show right here on Global News Radio.